Welcome to Food Forward, Nourishing the World, with your host, Alan Weiner. Over the next hour, you'll explore the innovative and ever-evolving solutions in everyone's favorite topic, food. Now, here's your host, Alan. Greetings from the Sunshine State, and welcome to Food Forward, Nourishing the World. I'm your host, Alan Weiner. So this is our last show of 2023, and as we always look at the future of food, it's interesting to take stock of where we are and where we are going. And we're going to do that throughout the show today with our special guests and some segments that I will host. Our special guests today are going to talk about sustainable seafood and a very interesting approach which is very popular in places like Portugal, that is going to be a big hit here in the U.S. We'll also talk about plant-based chicken that is actually affordable, not like the high markups that you'll see for most plant-based chicken products. You know the drill. When it comes to social media, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. And While we are live, if you want to catch up on some past episodes, you can do so on demand, not only at my Voice America page, but also on your favorite platform. So with that, I want to welcome our first guest, Henry Lovejoy. Henry, along with his wife, Lisa, began a company called Echo Fish, and it's a great story with some very interesting products. So... Welcome, Henry. How are things up in New Hampshire today? And things are great, Alan. Great to be here. So um, the product that we want to kind of focus on is Freshe, which is a canned um, tuna and salmon, but it has a different twist. So let's kind of rewind a little bit. I know that you and your wife uh, took a trip to Portugal and you were looking for sardines. So tell us how you got from sardines to the new line of Fresh A products. Sounds great. Yeah, that was about six years ago. Um, Our uh, legacy brand, Henry and Lisa's Natural Seafood, we went to Portugal to source sardines for that. Um, We were in Portugal for about a week and a half and visited 12 different canneries up and down the coast uh, looking for sardines. And we found some some beautiful sardines that we're, we're selling now. It's very interesting because we went into a cannery that has um, been in operation for over 170 years. Um, the oldest operating uh, family-owned business in, in all of Europe um, that literally invented canned fish um, with canned tuna out of the Mediterranean. And uh, they were working on some some new items, some new technology that they wanted to introduce us to uh, that was not related to sardines. Um, they were starting to add uh, vegetables uh, in the cans uh, with a fish that they were, were canning. And we had uh, been doing some research and looking for a new opportunity to do something really revolutionary in the, the seafood market. You think about canned fish in the U.S., you know, we all grew up with Starkiss, Bumblebee, Chicken of the Sea, uh, canned tuna, uh, you know, honestly, bottom of the barrel, uh, really low quality. Uh, I think you can still buy them for about $1.29 a tin. Uh, when I was a kid, I think they're more like 49 cents. 
Um, then he traveled to Portugal and Spain, Spain where uh, tinfish was invented 170 years ago, and it's a completely different story. Uh, the, the fish they put in tins is really premium quality, uh, super fresh, beautiful. Um, and we, we kind of had an epiphany when we, we saw that they were adding other things. We we're looking for something that we could really disrupt the uh, canned fish market in the U.S. with. At the same time, U.S. consumers are eating five meals a day. Three of them are snacks. Uh, most of them are on the road alone. And, you know, people, a lot of people who need fast food, but they just don't want to eat McDonald's. It's not healthy. It's not appealing. Um, so we came up with the, the new brand idea, Fresh A Meals. Um, and we worked with a celebrity chef uh, here in Maine and developed uh, six different global recipes uh, to go with tuna and salmon. Um, and literally worked with him at his stovetop. Uh, once we thought we had the recipes perfected, uh, we put them in mason jars, flew to Portugal, and, and started working with a cannery. Um, and today we have um, six different recipes. They're full of uh, vegetables and olive oil and legumes and spices from around the world. Uh, super healthy, definitely mimic the Mediterranean diet. So people can have uh, a quick meal on the run that's super delicious and super healthy. So I know that sustainability is a big part of your operation. So how have changes in the seafood market, which I know you've been in for quite a while, how has sustainability changed and how do you view sustainability and use it in your products? You're right. It, uh, it runs in our blood. Uh, we founded EcoFish uh, it, as of uh, 2024. It'll be 25 years. So we literally pioneered the sustainable seafood category uh, at retail, uh, certainly in the United States. When we started, there was no certification. You know, today you can have USDA organic certification for vegetables, but nobody was even talking about sustainability in, in seafood uh, 25 years ago. Um, we had been in the global seafood industry shipping live lobster uh, throughout the world for eight years prior, learned a lot about the global seafood industry and saw a, a huge lack of regard for conservation that uh, was really disturbing to us. So the company EcoFish was our um, way to try to make a difference in an industry that we knew. So um, soon after we, we, we launched EcoFish, uh, we worked with a number of celebrity chefs around the U.S. and shipping them uh, via FedEx next day uh, fresh seafood um, to direct to the restaurants from Seattle and uh, started working with the marine conservation community, which at the time was really becoming active in, in ocean conservation issues and uh, starting to educate consumers on sustainability and seafood. And they helped us select what the, the most sustainable fish and fisheries are uh, to offer under the EcoFish brand to chefs. Um, and then within a, a couple of years, uh, some wonderful organizations did arise, uh, started through the World Wildlife Fund, the Marine Stewardship Council for Wild Fisheries, and then about five years later, the Aquaculture Stewardship Council uh, for farm fish, which is now more than 50% of global consumption and actually the fastest growing food production method on earth today is, is aquaculture, which is pretty interesting. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so we uh, we signed up right away. We were the first MSC certified seafood distributor uh, in the U.S. in 2001. Uh, they're very, very important partner of ours, uh, and it's a great way to have third-party verification with full chain of custody uh, certification right back to the, the fishery and the boat it was caught on. So we talked a little bit before we went on the air about how you dealt with supply chain issues uh, when you were in the live lobster business. Now, this is kind of a tricky supply chain when, and I, I assume you still send your fish to Portugal to be tinned. Um, how does that impact, you know, the costs and product development? Yeah, the fish, uh, to the extent that we can, uh, we try to do everything as locally as possible. Um, so with fresh A, a lot of the vegetables and uh, fish are, are caught right there and grown right there on the Iberian Peninsula, being Portugal and Spain and surrounding islands. The tuna that we use is skipjack tuna that is uh, pull and line caught uh, in the Canary Islands part of uh, Spain. We had to venture up to uh, Norway, but unfortunately still within Europe uh, for the uh, Atlantic salmon, uh, which is ASC certified and, and farmed in Norway. So to the extent we can, there are certain spices that are only grown in certain parts of the world, but to the extent we can, and, and you know, what's logistically reasonable, we try to stay as local as possible. So if anybody's been to Portugal and gone into a shop where they sell tinned fish, some actually do it exclusively and some you can find in more general food stores, one of the things that will strike you is the can. And the cans are, maybe it's a stretch, but a work of art. So um, how did you develop your can look so that it was kind of familiar to U.S. consumers, but still kept kind of the legacy of that, you know, flashy look? Yeah, that's a, a, well put. That's exactly what we tried to do. And, and really, it was one of the more fun aspects of the project um, is to, through the packaging, convey quality and, and also kind of exotic foreign destinations. So our concept was to uh, use tile and fabric uh, from the cultures that the, the recipes are coming from. So you'll see on the fresh A-tins, they're all very brightly colored um, tile mosaics from and uh, fabrics from different parts of the world. So our Moroccan tagine, for instance, has uh, Moroccan tile artwork on it. The Aztec enchilada is a classic Mexican recipe and it's uh, Mexican fabric. So it was a really fun way to kind of incorporate uh, that part of history that you were talking about. So as you mentioned, you know, you can go into a grocery store, pick up a tin of salmon for, you know, $1.50. what are the challenges in, in market acceptance? Are you using social media in some way to kind of get your brand well-known? We are. Um, and that's been a luxury for us because we're a very small company. And um, we knew that it was going to be critically important uh, when we launched Fresh A in, in 2018 uh, to become really active uh, on social. And we work with a, a group that does an amazing job um, and fortunately, I like to think that EcoFish and Fresh A are a part of this. There's a really strong tin fish 
guess I call it a craze uh, here in the U.S. Uh, lots of activity in social areas like TikTok. Uh, people are developing things like secutery boards uh, that have uh, European tinfish um, included. Um, so there's a lot of momentum right now. Uh, people are definitely discovering uh, the quality of European tinfish, especially from the Iberian Peninsula. It's really becoming a, a kind of a, a foodie tourism thing. Um, it's <clears throat> five, 10 years ago, you'd be hard pressed to talk to somebody who'd been to Portugal and Spain. And, and now it seems like uh, everybody's going there, which is wonderful. It's one of the better parts of the world. And um so it's really being discovered. Uh, and as you mentioned, there, there are shops everywhere that are just uh, beautifully colored tin fish, uh, including in, in, in the airport in Lisbon now, there, where there's just walls of, of tin fish in the shop. So it's fun. Um, it's, a, you know, it's a huge departure from going from live lobster, uh, which is the most perishable product in the world, to tin fish that has uh, at least a four-year shelf life. Um, it's definitely, you get a lot more sleep at night. And um, it's it's a great way to pre preserve fish. You know, for any of us that grew up with moms or grandmoms that you know did a lot of canning at home, uh, stewing tomatoes, whatever, we know that if you put a really nice, fresh, high-quality food ingredient and can it, um, it's going to come out just as good as it went in. Uh, and what we love about it is the tins are aluminum, which is the most recyclable and most recycled packaging on earth. Um, and that's it. It's just an aluminum tin for your shelf life. Um, the, the product is, is absolutely delicious coming out of the tin and it's incredibly convenient. Uh, it's an easy open lid. So, you know, whether you're on a mountaintop or your, your desk at work, you can pop it open. So I know that your approach to reaching the market is direct to consumer. Um, can you tell us why, as opposed to trying to get into retail? Yeah, well, you know, actually, um, we are working very hard uh, at growing our direct to consumer. Our traditionally for EcoFish and going back to about 2006 when we launched Henry and Lisa's Natural Seafood. Uh, didn't have the internet then. And um, so we worked really hard at, at gaining uh, brick and mortar retail distribution. Um, so today, Fresh A is in close to 3000 grocery store shelves around the country. Um, and then about it's growing every month, but we're close to about 30% of our sales actually being online. Um, and, and trying to grow that as, as much as we can uh, and, and have that direct relationship uh, with a consumer as opposed to going through distributors and retailers. It's a very important piece of the pie, but we, we feel like our future really will be to continue building those relationships directly with consumers. Right. So before we end the conversation, which I think we can go on forever, um, Tell us again your six um, different varieties and how consumers can get them. Sounds great. So uh, there are two salmon recipes. There's a Moroccan tagine, uh, which is, is my personal favorite. Um, so you have salmon in the recipe, but you also have chickpeas, onions, uh, roasted zucchini, quinoa, olives, uh, fennel. It's absolutely delicious. The, the second salmon recipe is the Barcelona 
escalivado. Uh, and that is uh, salmon, roasted eggplant, peppers, quinoa, and uh, onions, et cetera. Then there are four uh, tuna recipes. There's an Aztec ensalada, which is a very uh, similar to a, you know, a Mexican salad uh, with corn and beans. Uh, a Sicilian caponata that is uh, tuna-based and has butternut squash, uh, shaved almonds. And that's one of the fun things about canning is, you know, you can actually put nuts and almonds and, and really, you know, exotic ingredients in what otherwise would be just tin fish. There's a Thai sriracha, which has a little bit of heat to it, uh, sweet and sour beans, crunchy peanuts, um, leafy greens, and then a classic French salad, a Provence Nichoise, which a lot of these are great on um, on salad greens, or you know, we developed to, to eat them straight out of the tin, or people are heating them up and putting them over pasta, or just eating them with crackers or on a baguette. Uh, there, there's a million uses for them. So they're really fun. You can find them at uh, freshemeals.com, F-R-E-S-H-E-M-E-A-L-S.com. Henry, thanks so much for joining us. A big thanks to Henry Lovejoy. Um, we'll be back after this message with Christy Middleton of Rebellious Foods. Thank you, Alan. Mark Tower's journey from his humble beginnings in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, to finding himself while in prison may sound familiar to some other famous figures, but his story is uniquely his own. Alan Weiner's new book, Watch Tower, chronicles Tower's wayward early days doing construction work of questionable legality to finding purpose in helping children in Peru, and finally discovering his calling as a watchmaker while in prison. It's a story of redemption that teaches the value of time and faith in oneself. You can get your copy of Watch Tower today and dive into this inspirational tale. The book is available on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble.com, and your favorite bookstore. Watch Tower, from the author who brought you the Max Rosen Mystery Series. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Food Forward with Alan Weiner. Have a question for Alan or his guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Food Forward, Nourishing the World. I'm your host, Alan Weiner. Next, we have a very special guest joining us today. It's Christy Middleton, who was Vice President of Business Development for Rebellious Food. And yes, they truly are rebellious in a number of ways. Not only are they creating savory, plant-based food, but they're doing it in a way that's, well, I'll let her tell you how it's going to benefit the consumer. So welcome to Food Forward. Christy, how are you? Hey, Alan, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. So before we jump into this, um, I watched some of the video on YouTube of interviews that were done for you on uh, King and KCPQ. And um, I'm curious how a Boeing engineer and someone who is well known in the plant-based food space got together to create this company. 
Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, so we have two Christies. I'm Christy Middleton, and then we also have Christy Legali, our founder and CEO, who is a former Boeing engineer. In my previous world, I worked for nonprofits, the Humane Society of the United States, where I was helping institutions like schools, hospitals, colleges and universities, and the military get more plant-based options on menus. And Christy was a Boeing engineer and a volunteer of the Humane Society of the United States. So, um, We'd work together in a volunteer capacity where she was trying to help get her cafeteria to do Meatless Monday. And I had shared with her that one of the biggest inhibiting factors that we had heard from a lot of institutions was that they needed affordable plant-based options to the most popular menu items. And those are ubiquitously nuggets, patties, and tenders. And so over the years, I had talked to food service providers and asked them if they had a plant-based version that hit all the same notes, that was delicious, that was affordable, and that their guests really liked, but also available through their same distribution channels, would they use those products instead? And overwhelmingly, the answer was yes. Problem was, nobody could really find a way to do that affordably. And that's what Christy um, came along and was able to do. One of the biggest problems is a lot of people think that if you just scale up and you buy more ingredients that the cost is going to come down, but ingredients is just a fraction of the price. A lot of it comes from manufacturing. And so she identified that one of the biggest issues is that we're currently primarily using off-the-shelf equipment to make plant-based meat that was actually developed for meat. And it's the wrong tool to do the job. What about scaling? Isn't scaling part of it? So I would assume with a background of engineering and someone who I read has even patents in her field that she would be able to create a modular system that as your company grows, adding on more capacity wouldn't be a challenge. Yeah, I mean, and that, that's exactly what we're doing. So what um, the answer to the issue was developing novel production equipment. So moving away from that off-the-shelf equipment, the bowl mixers um, that have to be used in a batch process and instead doing a continuous process. And so some of the biggest issues with plant-based meat production are emulsification, hydration, and as you mentioned, just doing this at scale and being able to do that quickly, efficiently, and consistency. Because of course, consumers are gonna expect a consistent product. And you know what we find, find in a lot of these production facilities is because it is um, typically a manual batch process, there's a lot of inconsistency in the quality. So what we're doing is, yeah, we're designing this novel production equipment that's going to address the big barriers in hydration, emulsification, and actually be a fully continuous process. And what that means is you put all the ingredients in one end, and it's going to come out the other end instead of being done in small batches. Right. Let's talk about ingredients. So in one of the um, videos that I watched, someone said that there was a lot of trial and error. Um so how long did it take from start to come up with, yep, we've got it. This is chicken. Right. Well, it's a continuous process, honestly. Uh, we have a fantastic product that people really enjoy right now that we've been selling for a couple of years. The company was founded in 2017, and we actually had product to sell in 2018, um, but the product has changed over the years. Um, so what we're trying to do now is create something that's consistently good. Um, but who knows? We may continue iterating it on iterating on it at some point. Um, but I would say, you know, less than a year to develop something that was 
passable, sellable, and then probably another year to really refine that product and have something that we're consistently very proud of. So the um, foundation of the product from what I looked at the ingredients is wheat gluten. Is that correct? Um, it's wheat, gluten, and soy. So it's, I would say, primarily soy with some wheat protein as well, um, which is what the the gluten part is for the folks who are not familiar with that term. Right. And, you know, a lot of, uh, we, we did a lot of research and a lot of experimentation with different ingredients. And at the end of the day, soy was really the protein that provided consistent results that was affordable and widely available and it didn't matter if you were getting it from one vendor or a different vendor you would still get the same kind of results and that's a big problem with some of the other proteins is that they can really vary by where it's produced um, it also helps us with ensuring that we can meet the standards for the national school lunch program um, so we sell mostly to k-12 through schools and by using soy protein we're actually able to hit all the right amino acid profiles to be able to credit for um, what they consider a meat or meat alternate in the school lunch program. So you have this facility um, driving across the beautiful West Seattle Bridge. So tell me, um, how do you accommodate, you know, a, a mass distribution, which is obviously going to be your goal one of these days? I mean, are you going to create satellite facilities? How is that going to work? Cope? I doubt you're going to have co-packers. Well, we're currently working with co-packers, okay. um, you know, and, and as a young company, the future is still very unknown and uncharted. Um, but what we're hoping to do is we are planning to install this novel piece of equipment in a co-manufacturer that has a lot of the other um parts of the equipment and parts of the process that we need. So what this piece of equipment does is it basically addresses the dough making. And then, you know, our product like other either chicken or plant-based chicken still goes through the same types of equipment to do the bread, batter, fry, freeze, box, package, et cetera, process. Mm -hmm. And so we're planning on installing this equipment at a Coman facility, and then um, hopefully we'll be able to create many other um, pieces of technology like this and either lease these products out or lease these pieces of equipment out um, or maybe even sell them to other companies that are interested in producing plant-based meat. So my next question I think is a tricky one. Um, so your background in the Humane Society, almost organically, um, you bring with you ethical considerations when it comes to animals. Um, we see the words, you know, ethical considerations and sustainability thrown around in some cases more for marketing than it is for, you know, the actual um, reason a company is doing it. How do you make that message resonate and have a degree of authenticity um, as part of your your reaching consumers? Yeah, I mean, frankly, Alan, we, we aren't doing a lot of consumer-facing marketing. Most of our sales are going out to schools, hospitals, universities, and correctional facilities. We're you know, working with high-volume users, and really there's no longer much of a question with these food service providers on whether they should be serving more plant-based foods. It's really what should we serve and how can we do that affordably? Mm -hmm. um, that said, you know, ethics is really at the core of this company. We wanted to be a, be a part of solving the problem of this society over-consuming animal 
uh, protein. And of course, we know that that comes with all kinds of issues in terms of human health, animal welfare, um, and environmental sustainability, but also looking at how most people are treated in these types of facilities. We're talking about the workers. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we're really proud of is that this piece of equipment is going to actually make it um, require less labor, but also a better environment for the people who are working in it. Because most um, plant-based meat these days, it's manufactured in facilities that are completely chilled. So this actually, since it's a self-contained unit, won't require that it be um, manufactured in a cold environment. So you don't have workers who have to wear these heavy winter coats when they're in there producing the product, but also it dramatically cuts down on energy usage. And so we'll be spending a lot more money on uh, electricity for chilling a massive facility, which is also better for the environment. Now that leads to an interesting question. So your background and the other Christine's background, Christine and Christine, um, isn't, I mean, hers is in manufacturing, but manufacturing, you know, in the aerospace space. So when the company kind of built this new mechanism, did you look around at other companies to see, you know, how they were doing what they were doing and saying, you know, here's how we can make it better? It seems like, you know, you can't just kind of pull this out of the air. Right. I mean, I can't really speak to the engineering process because that's not um, right. my area of expertise. But what I can tell you is that what we did is what we looked at um, the the way that the vast majority of plant-based meat is produced. And um, Christy is very excited about manufacturing technology and looked all the way back to, you know, even what General Mills did and spinning protein fibers. Um, I don't know if you or your listeners are familiar with Bacos, but that was one of the first plant-based meats, like commercially produced plant-based meats at scale by a mainstream company and they were um, using a very specific new technology. So she devoured information on how other plant-based meats are being produced, whether it's through this type of dough making process that we use or through um, high moisture ex um, extrusion. A lot of other companies are using to produce um, plant-based meat, which is actually a very high energy um, and therefore very expensive and um, environmentally, I would say it's it's not terrible for the environment compared to meat, but also it because it does require a lot of energy, it's not as um, good for the environment as this equipment that we're deploying. So speaking of meat, um beyond what you're creating for um, poultry lovers who want to not harm chickens. What, what else? I mean, the machinery can obviously do a lot, but it's about, you know, what goes into the machinery. What are you looking at, you know, as your next act after, after poultry, after chicken? Um, and, and when do you see that on the horizon? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one of our tenants is that success requires focus. So we want to make sure that we have the best product on the market that's consistently delicious, but also affordable to everyone, because there's no way that we're going to be able to feed this exploding global population plant-based meat if they can't eat it affordably. Mm -hmm. So right now we're really focusing on plant-based chicken, but the great news is that this equipment that we've developed actually could be used to produce all kinds of other plant-based meats. So we talked about co-manufacturers. We could even serve as a co-manufacturer for another company that's producing burgers or sausages, anything that uses that type of um, current dough-making process, we could use this equipment to actually produce for them. But you are distributing uh, to consumers as well, not just to schools, correct? 
Uh, we do have a retail line. It's a fraction of our business currently, um, and we have a pretty strong foothold in the Pacific Northwest. So we're available in Whole Foods, Safeway, and you know, hundreds of independent locations, but the primary business and the real reason that this company was founded was to be able to solve a problem at scale. And because, you know, in the National School Launch Program, for example, 32 million meals a day are served, we feel like that's a really great opportunity for us to be able to actually make a very big difference in the world by helping them get access to affordable, delicious products that their students don't know or don't even care happen to be plant-based. Of course. So you're currently in schools in the Pacific Northwest? We are, yeah. We're in um, about two over 200 school districts across the country, but um, a handful of them up in the Pacific Northwest as well. Everett, Bellingham, um, Tahoma, um, all the way down into Oregon. So um, I, I won't name all of them, but yeah, we're, we're in a That's ton nice. of districts up there as well. I used to work in Everett, so interesting. Oh, cool. um, so beyond schools, you mentioned... Um, uh, businesses, hospitals, et cetera. How, how deep are you into that? K through 12 really makes up the lion's share of our business, but we are even selling into correctional facilities. There are, you know, large population of people who are incarcerated who are either you know for religious reasons health reasons or what have you are looking for plant-based options and because our product is one that happens to actually be affordable we are getting some volume pickup there um, we're also in you know a handful of colleges universities and hospitals as well interesting very interesting so for people who want to know more about your product whether they're you know consumers who kind of wander upon a QFC or Whole Foods while they're in Seattle, or if you're a you know school administrator, how can they find out more about um, Rebellious Foods? They can go to our website, which is rebellious.com, and that's spelled R-E-B-E-L-L-Y-O-U-S. We're putting the, the belly in there because it is that comfort food that everybody's looking for, and also um, on Instagram at the same handle. Fantastic. Well, I'd like to thank Christy Middleton, who was vice president vice president uh, to spit that out a business development for rebellious food thank you for joining us look forward to checking in with you in the near future we'll be back after this message mark tower's journey from his humble beginnings in bethlehem pennsylvania to finding himself while in prison may sound familiar to some other famous figures, but his story is uniquely his own. Alan Weiner's new book, Watch Tower, chronicles Tower's wayward early days doing construction work of questionable legality to finding purpose in helping children in Peru and finally discovering his calling as a watchmaker while in prison. It's a story of redemption that teaches the value of time and faith in oneself. You can get your copy of Watch Tower today and dive into this inspirational tale. The book is available on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble.com, and your favorite bookstore. Watch Tower, from the author who brought you the Max Rosen Mystery Series. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Food Forward with Alan Weiner. Have a question for Alan or his guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5791. 
That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Food Forward, Nourishing the World. I'm your host, Alan Weiner. First, I'd like to thank our guests, Henry Lovejoy of Fresh A Foods, and Christy Middleton, who is of Rebellious Foods. We have fish, we have chicken, who knows what's going to come next. So in our next segment, we're going to take a look back at my take on the top stories of 2003. Of course, I'd like to hear whether you agree or whether you have some that you'd like to kind of have mentioned on the show. So our first one deals with lab-grown meats, which has become uh, somewhat controversial. So in case you're not familiar with lab-grown meats, a sample is taken from a live animal and it is cultured and nurtured and fed uh, all kinds of nutrients. Then it's put in a bioreactor to the point where it creates meat. So in 2003, in June, the USDA and FDA who are working in concert gave, it's not necessarily the approval. I believe what happened was they said that they had no questions about the lab-grown meat. So two companies, Upside and Good Meat, um, began the process. In addition, um, Singapore gave the full blessing to um, lab-grown meat as the Netherlands allowed two companies, Meatable and Mosa Meats, to be able to sample their products. So there's been a lot of kind of backlash against lab-grown meat, particularly in Europe. So lab-grown meat has been banned in Italy because the Italian government believes it's a threat to their farmers and to their entire agricultural business, given the supply chain of, of feedlots as well as cattle. Um, there is a bill currently being discussed in France to ban lab-grown meat. Now, the kicker here is the EU is in favor of lab-grown meat and has decided that they will implement fines for any country that is in the process of or has decided to ban um, lab-grown meat. So it'll be interesting to keep an eye on that particular development. You know, the problem with lab-grown meat is, you know, the initial market for it will be restaurants and it will be very costly. So it's going to be quite a while before you see lab-grown meat in your supermarket because in order to get it to consumer-friendly pricing, things need to be done at scale so that they can get the cost closer to, if not exactly like traditional meat from animals. And that's a problem facing our second topic from 2023, and that is plant-based food. So plant-based food is in a bit of a turmoil. We have companies like Impossible Meats, uh, who is laying off people, and you have new companies springing up, grabbing little pieces of the market. And then you have companies that are just kind of going bankrupt. Um, Tattooed Chef, which was one of the earliest ones, 
uh, a company that went public uh, went bankrupt, as did Do Good Foods, followed by Aero Garden and App Harvest. Those are two companies that specialize in indoor agriculture. So we have the same problems. Cost, the ability to you know, do it at scale, um, as well as consumer acceptance. Now, there's another way of looking at, at plant-based meat. It could be just on pause. So I've discussed this with some other of our guests in the past. It's my belief that um, plant-based meat has gone through uh, and has finished its first cycle. And that is kind of getting products out, getting it in, onto supermarket shelves, getting people to sample it. Uh, in many cases, they're not all that healthy, especially compared to meat. Um, I think that we're now getting into a period of time where you're going to see plant-based meat uh, made from more sustainable and more healthy products. And one of them certainly is mushrooms and products in the mushroom family. And that brings to mind a company that is very, very popular in our house, which is called Meaty, M-E-A-T-I, which you can buy at Whole Foods and you can buy at Sprouts. Now, like I mentioned before, they're expensive. So um, I think if you're on a budget, it will be something you might want to try and sample, but to have as a regular item, it could get a little costly, but they are quite delicious. Um, they make a chicken cutlet. There's some uh, carne asada and some other ones as well. The third um, item, and this is certainly going to be controversial, is the impact of the war between Israel and Gaza on both the Israeli food startup scene as well as Gaza's scene. So in 2022, the alternative protein market in Israel was $454 million that was invested in that space which is a lot. Now, the problem that happened once the war started is um, companies, including venture capital companies, were called off by the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force. And uh, a number of companies like Imagine Dairy had to delay their announcements of, of products that were you know, going to come out into the marketplace. Now, Gaza has been hit as well. Um, Gaza tech workers were extremely crucial to NVIDIA. So NVIDIA, if you're not familiar, is a company that provides um, graphic boards to pretty much every computer that I've ever had. So with Gaza workers um, facing difficulties, probably even getting electricity, um, that is impacted as well. And uh, Israel is also the host of a number of um, high-end food tech conferences, which clearly have been put on hold as well. My fourth item is the role of artificial intelligence and food. So first off, you can look at food safety. So using artificial intelligence, you're able to um, look at the supply chain and measure uh, the quality of food as it goes from farmer to consumer or from farmer and distributor to uh, a supermarket. 
So you're able to use artificial intelligence and sensors to track food safety. Um, artificial intelligence can also be used to create personal food experiences. And this is one that, that's kind of fun, um, both as a learning experience, as well as you know something that you can have fun with. Uh, for example, you can find recipes, you can uh, try different cuisines. You also can use it to find restaurants. Um, so Expedia for One has incorporated AI into its um, application. So you could use that to help you find you know, food experiences wherever you go in the world. And you can use, I don't know, ChatGPT or Claude AI or others, Bard from Google or um, you know, Bing at Microsoft and say something like, okay, I'm going to Warsaw, Poland. Tell me the five must-see food markets or the top restaurants for uh, getting um, you know, traditional Polish foods. Now, there's another part of the short sale, uh, I'm sorry, of the supply chain, which I think is really, really interesting and, and put in place by a couple of companies we've had on the show. And that is being able to keep track of the sale of individual products by sale date. So um, it dynamically changes the price of products as it gets closer to its sale dates, which I think is really pretty interesting and you know, keeps food out of dumpsters and keeps food um, you know, out of the garbage and can certainly you know, be uh, put in the hands of people that really need it. Um, there's also virtual assistants. So you can use AI uh, to create a virtual assistant to help you uh, with your food intake, particularly if you're looking for a, a special diet. Um, so I think that that would be something that would be really interesting to kind of keep track of. So AI and food uh, hopefully will make its way into, you know, companion products like Alexa, uh, companion products like Google Home, so that you can incorporate AI into suggestions. Uh, you already can do recipes on uh, Alexa, for example, but, you know, it's a little bit clunky and, you know, you need to do it in segments. So hopefully AI will make that a much more interesting experience. So, you know, again, I would like to hear from you as to your uh, top food trends for 2023 uh, before we kind of break into 2024 trends. So I found some really fascinating 2024 trends looking ahead. The first one is one that kind of took me by surprise, but it really shouldn't. Um, and that is late night snacking. So believe it or not, the amount of food that is bought between 1 a.m. and 6 a.m., people under 35, is rising. So one of the things that's interesting about this is people who have less income, but I also think it's people who are in the gig economy. So if I'm, for example, um, riding for Lyft or Uber, and, you know, I want to take advantage of, you know, late night flights coming in from the airport. I'm going to want to stop at a Circle K or 7-Eleven or here in Florida Dailies 
and you know buy something to kind of keep me going be it a a, a drink of some sort or you know just a a snack as you see more and more of these um, places have fresh food available the second trend which i think is sort of um one that i never would have thought of and that is extravagant breakfasts so <laughs> when i was reading about it they used the word bougie which uh to me is slang for bourgeois and people going out for extravagant brunches ex- extravagant breakfast but the number of people who are going out for brunch is is really skyrocketing which um i find kind of interesting since my wife and i never go out for breakfast or brunch for that matter so um apparently a lot of people are um the third trend is sustainable choices and of course you know that is something that goes hand in hand with pretty much every uh guest that we've had on but the way sustainable choices are manifesting are in you know things that people read as well as packaging and in social media so companies in order to get that message across are using social media to underscore the fact that they are using you know sustainable products they're using sustainable you know fish as henry lovejoy spoke spoke about and you know we're doing our best to keep things green the uh fourth one is functional beverages which is a kind of broad brush stroke of beverages that take care of hydration that give you energy so this would be everything from you know tiger milk um to you know Gatorade and if you go down any aisle in any supermarket you will find more than just a few of functional breakfast friendship part me functional beverages so next um one that i think is kind of cool and that is special or secret menu items now i never heard about this until um back in the meat eating days my um family and i um went to what's the burger place um in and out and they have a whole lot of secret menu items that become part of i don't know it's not necessarily urban legend but ones that you can order that get passed on from person to person and now with social media i doubt that they are kept secret for very long so we're going to come back with some more uh, of the 2024 trends as well as talk about what's coming for 2024 in our show but um before then we have yet another message and another break we'll be back after this mark tower's journey from his humble beginnings in bethlehem pennsylvania to finding himself while in prison may sound familiar to some other famous figures but his story is uniquely his own alan weiner's new book Watchtower chronicles Tower's wayward early days doing construction work of questionable legality to finding purpose in helping children in Peru and finally discovering his calling as a watchmaker while in prison. It's a story of redemption that teaches the value of time and faith in oneself. You can get your copy of Watchtower today and dive into this inspirational tale. The book is available on amazon.com, 
Barnes and Noble.com, and your favorite bookstore. Watchtower, from the author who brought you the Max Rosen Mystery Series. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Food Forward with Alan Weiner. Have a question for Alan or his guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Food Forward, Nourishing the World. I'm your host, Alan Weiner. Again, let me thank our guests, Henry Lovejoy of Fresh A Foods, and Christy Middleton of Rebellious Foods. Now, you know, I, I'm not one to always give personal recommendations, although I did one for Mevi. Um, my wife, who really loves canned salmon, sampled um, one of Fresh A, and they provided us with some samples, a Fresh A salmon that came with beans and was packed in olive oil. And a big thumbs up. She really liked it. And she's, she's a tough audience. Believe me, she um, grew up eating really high-end canned salmon, uh, living in the Pacific Northwest, as well as a lot of fresh salmon. And um, she gave it the thumbs up and really liked it. So before we move on, let me kind of review the 2023 trends that we had. First one was lab-grown meat, uh, a business that's in a bit of turmoil, as is number two, plant-based meats. Number three was the impact of the war between Israel and Gaza on not only Israeli food startups, but also Gaza workers who work for NVIDIA uh, on their graphics boards. And number four was AI, artificial intelligence, and its role in food. We also kind of started into our 2024 trends. One is late night snacking. The second is bougie, extravagant breakfasts. I like to use that word bougie because it makes me sound young and cool. Uh, sustainable choices, functional beverages, um, secret menu items or special menu items, which um, are, are more than uh, somebody saying um, our specials today are, you know, uh, ham on rye. Uh, it's things that get passed on from person to person. Two more that I want to kind of talk about. One is um, one-handed meals. And this kind of goes back to late night snacking. A lot of young people who are uh, on the or in the gig economy uh, need to eat on the go. And if they're working for DoorDash or Uber or any one of the countless other uh, companies in the gig economy, a one-handed meal allows you to, well, drive somewhat safely, and uh, eat as well. The last one is robotic helpers. And the other day I saw on my daughter's Instagram, uh, a restaurant that she and my son-in-law went into, I believe it was in the Chicago area, where they had robots delivering the food. And I think you're going to see more and more of that, um, which I think is going to be a trend that hopefully won't eliminate um, the need for human workers, maybe just one that kind of helps them. Boy, if they could teach them to bust the tables, that would be even better. And of course, you know, you see robotics more and more in delivery services, 
Um, in San Francisco, you know, there's been some issues with people vandalizing these robotic helpers, but it, uh, you know, saves time and, you know, saves energy, to be honest with you. So next week, we're going to kind of continue our look ahead for 2024. Um, we are going to have some special guests, and I want to take a second to talk about my new book that you may have heard in the new commercial. The book is called Watchtower. It's about a young man named Mark Tower who has some trouble growing up. He starts in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Um, his life takes him to Phoenix and Scottsdale, then takes him to Peru, of all places, where he has to go on an assignment to help some underprivileged people then back to the Phoenix area where he winds up getting incarcerated and learning the watchmaking trade, hence um, Watch Tower. Get it? Um, the book is published by Pegasus Publishing, which is a British company. You can find more information about the book on their site, as well as you can purchase it on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and in your favorite store. My wife and I were in London and I went into a store, um, big bookstore, and had them order it uh, to keep in their store. And hopefully the three copies that they ha had, you know, come in, um, sold. Uh, I could use the money. So in 2024, um, we're going to experiment with some new format ideas, which going to keep a secret. Let's make it a secret menu item for next year. So until next time, this is Alan Weiner signing off and reminding you, eat hearty, but eat healthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Food Forward. We hope we've given you some insights into the wide world of food. Until we talk again, have a wonderful week.